Nothing is easier than to denounce the evildoer. Nothing is more difficult than to understand him. Dostoevsky. Welcome to Two Creepy Bees, a podcast where two sisters obsessed with the macabre talk spirits, urban legends, aliens, and the occult. Essentially, anything that tingles your spines and bumps your gooses. I'm Bailey. And I'm Bethany. And we're your two creepy co-hosts. Well, howdy doody, creeps. I... Uh, that wasn't great but hello you get the point welcome back to an episode of two creepy bees wow i'm good are you okay i don't know (laughs) i'm hanging in there yeah maybe you should take a nap after this that's not that's not a bad idea i'm gonna eat some food and take a naps Mm, that sounds nice Hmm, maybe I'll get Tyler to give me some chicken nuggets. Ooh, classic. Yeah, mm, yeah, you know, you know. Anyway, what are we talking about today, Bailey? This week, we are going to be discussing the curse of the Dybbuk box. Bum, bum, bum. Yes. So, for those who don't know, um, the Dybbuk box is a reportedly haunted wine cabinet originally purchased by a Kevin Manis in Portland, Oregon. And the box... A Kevin Manis. Well, there could be more than one. (laughs) Um, This... A lot of the story revolves around Kevin and the, the many examples of misfortune that followed him while owning... The Dybbuk box, mm-hmm. but the Dybbuk box does change hands throughout the story. Um, the The Dybbuk box became popular after Kevin Manis uh, put it up for sale on eBay mm-hmm. um, with a, a very interesting description. Mm-hmm. But the Dybbuk box is said to be the most haunted object in the world. And anyone who opens the box and messes with the box is reportedly um, to have some very serious consequences. So we are going to tell you that. Get into that today. (laughs) See, this is why. We're crushing it. We're crushing it today, (laughs) y'all. Well, Bailey's going to kick us off this episode with a little background and, and background and explanation on what a Dybbuk is. Right. So before I get into the background on what a Dybbuk is, I just wanted to ask you guys to forgive any poor pronunciations uh, that I may may give in uh, the the background portion we always do our best to try to figure out what the correct pronunciation is for other languages but um i'm not even good at pronouncing words in my native tongue so (laughs) please forgive me (laughs) you'll do great i know you'll do uh so the concept of the dybbuk comes from judaism the dybbuk is a disembodied human spirit Uh, So it is human, not demonic. Uh, This person was very sinful in his or her life. 
It's said that they wander aimlessly until they find refuge in the body of a living person. Hmm. This evil spirit clings to a person's soul, causes mental illness, talks through his or her mouth, and represents a separate and foreign personality. These wicked spirits find haven in a person's body to escape persecution. Since they were souls of sinners, they were forced to roam in limbo, unable to enter hell. In Jewish tradition, hell is a place for temporary retribution, not eternal suffering. So a spirit could eventually ascend to paradise. In limbo, the spirit was constantly tormented by both angelic and demonic entities. Thereby, entering a living person's body was an escape from said torment as well as the opportunity for retribution and a chance to proceed to the realm of the dead. Isaac Gloria, who lived from 1534 to 1572, was a rabbi and mystic who laid the grounds for Jewish belief in Dybbuk's with his doctrine of transmigration of souls. Isaac Luria, whom lived from 1534 to 1572, was a rabbi and mystic who laid the grounds for Jewish belief in Dybbuk's with a doctrine of transmigration of souls, referred to as Gigul, which he saw as a means where souls could continue their task of self-perfection. This doctrine describes a Kabbalistic concept of reincarnation. Luria's disciples went on one step further with the notion of possession by said evil spirits. His disciples also created a set of protocols on how to exercise these spirits. It should be noted that the term Dybbuk was not used in Talmudic literature nor in the Kabbalah, where this phenomenon is always called evil spirit. The term was introduced into literature only in the 17th century from the spoken language of German and Polish Jews. The word Dybbuk is an abbreviation for the Jewish phrase a cleavage of an evil spirit. The term Dybbuk was used to designate this kind of spirit in possession from that of a demonic entity and or possession, or even a good or positive spirit uh, possession, which is also noted to be possible in Judaism. It's thought that although the Dybbuk appeared in 16th century writings, Mainstream scholars ignored the concept until S. Ansky's play, The Dybbuk, which first premiered in 1920, popularizing the term in literary circles. Ooh, I'm going to look that up after. In the play, a young bride is possessed by the ghost of the man she was meant to marry, had her father not broken a marriage agreement. Documented cases of Dybbuk possession appear in Jewish sources from the 16th century AD to the first few decades of the 20th century. Numerous manuscripts present detailed instructions on how to exercise them. The power to exercise Tibicum, I suppose that is the plural for Dybbuk, was given to the Baale Shem, or accomplished Hasidim. A Baal meaning master of the name, is a designation of certain people who are supposed to work miracles through the name of God, and Hasidim are members of the strictly orthodox Hasidic set of Judaism. They exercise the Dybbuk from the body and simultaneously redeem the soul by providing tikkun, or restoration for the spirit, either by transmigration, aka reincarnation, or by causing the Dybbuk to enter hell. 
Accounts of Dybbuk possessions also advocated orthodoxy among the population as a preventative measure. It was suggested that a person opened his or her house to a Dybbuk by creating sloppily made mezua, a decorative case that holds parchment with a specific Torah verse, or by entertaining doubt about Moses' crossing of the Red Sea. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I think that provides so much context for this legend. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. Okay. Well, cool. With that background, I feel like we are well equipped to dissect this infamous tale. Okay. So, in 2001, Kevin Manis, an antique store owner in Portland, Oregon, attended an estate sale in search of unique items for his shop. The estate sale was being run by a family of a woman who had passed away at the age of 103. He was told by her family that she was a Holocaust survivor. So Kevin was roaming the yard looking looking at the collection of items to be sold off. The woman's belongings were to be sold off in groups, meaning that items of a similar nature were placed on a pallet and sold off altogether. One pallet was of particular interest to Kevin. He placed his bet and won the whole lot for $27. But Kevin got more than what he bargained for. <laughs> oh, God, I hate myself sometimes. I'm really good at, I'm really good at adding the cheesiness in, so you're welcome. Anyway, as he was loading the items into his truck, he noticed that a couple of them seemed to be a bit out of place when compared to other pieces. There was an old steamer trunk, a sewing, a sewing, a sewing desk, and a small wine cabinet that was kept shut by a brass lock. Suddenly, a voice from behind him said, quote, I see you bought the Dybbuk box. Referring to the wine cabinet, it was the deceased woman's granddaughter. Kevin, being of Jewish faith himself, knew what a dibbuk was and was surprised to hear the young woman refer to the wine cabinet as such. The woman then proceeded to tell him that whenever someone would ask her grandmother about the box, she would, quote, spit between her fingers three times and said that it was never to be opened under any circumstances. But this story didn't phase Manus, so he packed it with the rest of his purchases and headed back to his shop. He brought his new purchases into the basement and immediately pried the wine cabinet open with a screwdriver. He claims that the doors swung open on their own, as if mechanized. Inside, he found an odd collection of things that he assumed to be sentimental keepsakes of the old woman. It contained a small brass goblet, a couple of pennies from the 20s, a candlestick, and a granite plaque with the word Shalom in Hebrew gra- engraved into it, and two locks of hair. He didn't find the wine cabinet to be particularly out of the ordinary, so he just went on about his day. Leaving the box in the basement, and leaving his then-employee, Jane, to watch after the store. Jane was down in the basement, alone, cleaning and organizing before the store was opened. All of a sudden, she had the strange sensation that she was being watched. She claims that she had never felt this way in the store before. Jane at some point had gone upstairs to take a phone call when she heard strange noises coming from the basement. So she went to investigate. 
It sounded as if someone was in the basement with her, rummaging through things, and then suddenly sounded she heard the sound of breaking glass. The lights apparently even shut off on their own. Understandably frightened, she called Kevin. She believed that someone had broken into the store. So sounds of glass being broken became louder and louder, and, drain, and Jane grew even more panic-stricken. She became so frightened to the point where she was, bar- was barely able to articulate what was happening to her boss. Obviously concerned, Kevin told her to call the police, and he rushed back to the shop. When Kevin arrived, he found the door to the basement locked from the outside, which he claims he never would have done, and it trapped Jane inside the basement. All of the light bulbs in the basement had been broken, and when he found Jane, it was clear that she had been crying. When Kevin asked what happened, she stormed out of the store. Kevin didn't know what to make of the events. Knowing there was no possible way an intruder could have gotten out without him seeing them, since the door was locked and there were no other exits, the only explanation he could think of was that he had somehow upset Jane, leading her to act out, break things, and leave the store. Jane never came back to the antique shop. A while passed, and nothing else seemed to happen. Business went about as usual. And so Kevin decided to give the wine cabinet to his mother as a birthday gift. On her birthday, Kevin's mom stopped at a shop to meet up with him before going to a celebratory lunch. When she arrived, Kevin presented the wine cabinet to his mother, stating, quote, I have an unusual present for you. Apparently, Kevin's mother, her, whose name is Ida, was no stranger to odd gifts. But she never received anything quite like this cabinet. Kevin had his mother sit down and relax in the company of her new gift while he finished up opening the antique shop. When she began to examine her new present, she began to feel uneasy. She is quoted in saying, When I was looking at that box, it was as if it, the box, were looking back at me. She began to open the wine cabinet, but the doors practically opened themselves. Once the doors opened, she reported a feeling that was, quote, like a cold breeze that was coming out of it. Kevin's mother then began to feel off, almost subdued. She sat back down and felt herself unable to move, unable to get away from the box. Kevin's mother was having a stroke. Her mouth and eye began to droop, and she was unable to speak. So Kevin found his mother barely able to move and unable to speak. He quickly called an ambulance. While waiting for the paramedics, Kevin said he could see the terror in his mother's eyes and that she was able to lift up a single finger to point in the direction of the box. Looking back on the incident, Kevin's mother said all she wanted to do was communicate to her son to get rid of the box. She said she knew the box was evil. After that incident, Kevin realized the common denominator in all of this misfortune was was the wine cabinet. He decided he needed to get rid of it. A few days later, an older couple purchased it from a shop, and he thought he was completely through with it. But shortly after it was purchased, Kevin found the box at the entrance to his shop with a note that read, quote, This has an odd darkness about it. So, Kevin decided to put it in a storage unit at the back of his house until he could figure out what to do with it. 
But that same night, he began having horrible nightmares, and every single night after that. In it, a trusted friend would turn into the ghastly figure of an old hag, and that would then try to attack him. And when he would wake, he would find bruises covering his entire body. Then he knew that the box was cursed. So he got rid of it in the quickest way he knew how. He put it on eBay. Naturally. Match. (laughs) But it was not his intention to trick some poor soul into buying a cursed cabinet. So he openly called the wine cabinet the Dybbuk Box. A haunted Jewish wine cabinet, and in its product description, he explained every odd thing that had happened to him after purchasing the box. He was hoping an experienced occultist would purchase the box and dispose of it properly. Alas, it was bought by a student at Truman State University in Kirksville, Mo. <laughs> uh, Mo. That's the best state. <laughs> oh, Mo. Apparently, the student, named Sam, bought it as a joke, but he began experiencing strange things as soon as it arrived. The box reportedly had an intense odor of urine that could be detected as soon as it was removed from its packaging. But Sam was curious to see if the box was everything it claimed to be. So Sam began recording his experiences in a blog, but electronics began breaking left and right. Sam's laptop crashed and appliances would stop working for apparently no reason. The box was impacting Sam's roommates too. Many of them were having nightmares and losing sleep. And their house even became infested with bugs. Sam became increasingly reclusive and his hair had started to fall out. Hmm, unfortunate. Sam decided to get rid of the box and put it up for sale again on eBay. That's when Jason Haxton, director of a medical museum at Truman State University, placed an offer for the Dybbuk box. Haxton had apparently been following Sam's blog for weeks, interested in tracking the progression of it. He had purchased the box out of pure fascination and curiosity. He wanted to take what he called a scientific approach to understanding the phenomena. He, too, wondered if all the strange occurrences were mere coincidence or the result of something truly evil. Jason won the bid on the Dybbuk box, buying it for $280. What a steal. What What a deal. You know, I'd say that's pretty, that's shooting pretty low for such a, uh, a fun, a fun box. Such a fun box. The night that the Dybbuk box arrived, Jason brought it to the university's museum to examine it. He later said that when he opened the box, he was expecting that if anything were to happen, that it would sort of happen right away. He thought maybe he would feel something weird, you know, as soon as he opened the doors. But when he opened the box, he was almost disappointed that he didn't feel anything. At least not yet. (laughs) Within, (laughs) Within days of it being at the museum, computers started crashing. And they were lo- and the museum was losing massive amounts of valuable data and weeks of work. Then lights all around the Dybbuk box began going out. Even more alarming, the museum staff started reporting illness and high levels of lethargy. The staff made it clear to Jason that they wanted the box out of there. Jason felt as if he had no choice but to bring it home. 
Not wanting to bring it into his actual house, he left it locked up in his truck. That same night, Jason reportedly began having nightmares of sunken-eyed, ghastly old women. When he woke the next morning, he was shocked to see his eyes bright red, almost bloody in appearance. But the most frightening occurrence involved an incident with his son. Jason and his son were sitting around the TV one evening, when all of a sudden, his son calls over to his father and asks, What is that? Jason looked around and saw this odd, black mass that moved about like flames. Jason, feeling responsible for recontaining and isolating whatever may have been released from the box, brought it to one of his rental properties that was unoccupied. He wanted to get that box away from his family, so he brought it into the basement and he locked it away. He thought he was finally rid of it, but that night he began throwing up apparently a jelly-like mucus. Yep. And his wife broke out in a rash of watery, bloody blisters all over her arms. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really painful. Jason knew that he needed to get in contact with Kevin Manis. He felt like he needed his help in order to understand what was happening to him and his family. So Jason called Kevin. Kevin was reluctant to hear Jason out initially because he was afraid that he might have to take the box back. Um, But Kevin, understanding Jason's position, decided to help. Kevin went searching for the house where he originally bought the box from. When he finally found it, he knocked on the door. He wanted to learn more about the box's history. The grandmother of the original owner answered the door, but when Kevin said that he wanted to ask a few questions regarding the wine cabinet, she refused to speak to him. Kevin began to leave when an old woman peered from behind the, behind the granddaughter. She apparently said, quote, I know why you're here. The old woman introduced herself as Sophie. She said she was the cousin of the woman who had passed away. Her name was Havila. She wanted to explain the origin of the box to Kevin. Sophie had apparently lived with Havila in Poland before World War II. At that time, seances and things of that nature were quite common. And Havila and Sophie would attempt to communicate with the spirit world with a homemade spirit board that consisted of um, symbols embroidered onto an old cloth. One night, they felt as though they had contacted something malevolent. It began to ask them to help it come over to Earth. They began to expect that they had conjured a Dybbuk. Fearing for their safety, they devised a way to trap the spirit within that wine cabinet. Havila warned everyone who encountered the box to stay away from it and to never, ever open it. Apparently, Kevin released the Dybbuk the day he opened it in his antique shop. Kevin relayed all of this information to Jason, and Jason began reaching out to various local rabbis in order to figure out the best way to seal the Dybbuk back inside. For several years, Jason kept the sealed Dybbuk box hidden. He told no one of its location. So, where is the box now, you may ask? Well... Good old Zach Baggins from Ghost Adventures purchased the box from Kevin at the latest in 2017 
for apparently tens of thousands of dollars. <laughs> it is now on display for everyone to see at Zach's Museum of Haunted and Paranormal Objects in Las Vegas, where if you sign a waiver that releases Baggins from liability if anything bad happens to you while viewing the box, you can take a peek at the infamous, infamous wine cabinet. The Dybbuk box has attracted attention recently when singer Post Malone visited Ghost Adventures host Zach Baggins' aptly named Haunted Museum, which, as we mentioned before, is where the Dybbuk box now resides. While Baggins was showing him the collection, Malone supposedly touched the Dybbuk box. Some sources say he was only merely in the same room with the box. Either way, he apparently released a curse that led to a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> this curse may be the reason some people believe why his London-bound private plane blew out its tires during takeoff from New Jersey and was forced to make an emergency landing after using up fuel and switching airports three times. Jeez. Yeah, that's scary. That is scary. It's believed this curse was to blame for his accident in his Rolls Royce and why his former home was robbed of over $200,000 worth of belongings. The armed robbers broke in believing the home still belonged to Malone, reportedly shouting to its new residents, Where's Post Malone? <laughs> Coincidence or curse? Who can really say? Ba -ba -ba. Uh, I love that. I love that <laughs> this story that I love that the legend that we researched actually has some fun modern references to pop culture in today's world. Well, I guess it's funny because we heard this story, I mean, how many years ago? Long time. Like, long time ago. I don't know. It's not like many. It had to be. A, I mean, I feel like. Probably at it least five was, years ago. Yeah, yeah, five, six years ago. Because I remember, I feel like we first heard of it from that Paranormal Witness mm -hmm. episode mm -hmm. of it. And that, I think that was released in 2012. Yeah, so. So, at the, at the, early, at the latest 2012, at the earliest, I don't know. Well, anyway, anyway so I'm yeah, just, we, I'm just saying that it's interesting because we heard it so long ago and now it's being brought up again you know, uh, in modern day pop culture. I just thought mm -hmm. that was interesting. Yeah. And, um, and the guys, so Jason and Kevin apparently helped to, pro I don't know if they helped to produce, but they were involved with the production of you were that horror movie. Right? Yeah. Yeah. They were set consultants or yeah. Story consultants for the horror movie. I think it was released in like 2010, 2009? No. When was it released? Anyway, for the horror movie The Possession, um, that actually tells a similar story, except a Dybbuk box curses a little girl. Yep. So they definitely, they made a little money. They I made guess a little money I off made up story. for the fact that uh, they went through all that bad luck, I guess. Allegedly. Now, now. Now, now. <laughs> whether, <laughs> whether you believe in this story or not, it certainly is one hell of a legend. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a, 
a really good example of more modern. Mm-hmm. Um, more, more modern uh, legend. Yeah, for sure. Folklore developing to, in this day and age. It's pretty cool. We decided not to add, like, a super critical element to this episode. We thought it would just be nice for, for you to... For you to interpret it as you will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I hope y'all enjoyed this little spooky legend today. I definitely recommend watching that episode of Paranormal Witness. Mm-hmm. I think you can you can watch it on sci-fi.com. And yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening, and we will be back in two weeks. Indeed. Have well, yeah. See you guys in two weeks. No, you won't. You'll hear us. Whatever. <laughs> they <laughs> Bye. Audio for Two Creepy Bees is edited and designed by Tyler Lidwell Videography. Please, if you enjoyed this podcast and all things creepy, you can find us on your favorite listening forum, where, if you want to support us, you can like, review, and subscribe to help get the word out about our show. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest under Two Creepy Bees. You can drop us an email at twocreepybees at gmail.com. And finally, check out our website at www.twocreepybees.com. And remember, keep it creepy. Creepy.